Enlightenment Radio, Rupo VSO Musvidu, Zed Vami 24 Godini Musiki, Prami Translacy Talmishtasni Pied Devisan Harista Pied Kas Mishtagnoi Podrozi, Tokakom. Thank you, Enigma. The eyes of truth are watching you. The eyes of truth and the eyes of goodness and the eyes of a future hope are with the Ukraine people. I can see this turning around right now as we speak. Russia's getting bogged down and they're getting frustrated and the world is not really paying attention. That's one problem. Anyway, this is your host, Mystic Guide, Enlightenment Radio. We're on at 6 o'clock your time. What, what's the... Got any weather over there, Frenchie? It's, uh, we opened up with 49 degrees this morning here, but it warms up pretty quick. And um, we've got news. I've got uh, an interesting report I'm going to start with from CNN. This is about that. It's 48 degrees where you are. Okay. Uh, doesn't show any rain, just clouds. So this is the guy that Putin yanked out of his collar around 2014 or 15. The billionaire, the richest man in Russia. Which proves he, it don't matter how rich you are in a dictatorship. If he wants to put you in prison and take your money and shut down your business, take it for himself, he'll do it. And that's exactly what he did with this man. And I'm sure a lot of you in the Ukraine are probably familiar with this story. Uh, we News here seems to bubble up and then go away after about a week. <laughs> so this guy was put in prison all this time. We'll find out when he got out. It's a CNN report, and we're going to start with that. And also, the Heart of Hope, Ukraine, the Heart of Hope, your website is up. It's got stories up there, too. We're, uh, we got one of our computers down that won't do the translating today. So, YouTube, yeah, you can hear this on YouTube also. Go down to the corner of the uh, Ukraine, theheartofhope.com. Click the YouTube channel. That may go into a translation. I'm not sure. Are you may? Are they going to see the visuals of the news? Uh, the visual of the news. I'm trying to get them fast as I can. All right. Well, don't worry about it. This is uh, just an interview right here. We don't need any maps or, or news visuals. But this guy, he looks like he's in pretty good shape, pretty good mood for having lost all of his money and lost all of his life by a, a dictator. Anyway, here we go. CNN interview. I'm joined now by Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was once Russia's richest man. In the early years of Putin's reign, Khodorkovsky became a prominent critic of the Kremlin before he was imprisoned for fraud and tax evasion, charges he says were politically motivated. He was released in 2013 and has been living outside Russia since then. Welcome, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. But before we begin, I want people to understand why I think you have real insight into how the Kremlin works. In 2003, you were the richest man in Russia. 
brilliant businessman. You had run a whole bunch of businesses. Um, and then you start criticizing the regime. And you say you may run against Putin for, for president. Within six months, your company has been taken away from you, the largest company in Russia. You are in prison, and you spent 10 years in prison. Uh, and the company is taken away through a complicated series of maneuvers where they claim tax fraud and stuff. So you know how Putin operates um, and who has power in that system. Is it possible that the oligarchs have enough power that they can pressure Putin to change course, to withdraw from Ukraine? Uh, this is a mistake, uh, a mistaken pre presumption about how Russian power is arranged. Russian power is not an oligarchy. It's a dictatorship. And the oligarchs are merely, actually, not oligarchs, but merely agents of the Kremlin who are used by the Kremlin as a tool. So there is no feedback in the other direction to influence the dictator. They, they cannot do that in a in practical sense. Um, what about uh, the military or other parts of the uh, the ruling elite, maybe the the KGB, what is now the FSB, are the intelligence services or the army? Does anyone have power other than you know Putin? He calls himself the vertical of power. Is there anybody outside of that vertical of power? Most likely, it's it's not so much a, a vertical of power. It's Putin power. Putin holds on to power by uh, taking parts of the, uh, the people around him and, and setting them off against each other. Of course, there are people that do have some influence on his mental perceptions, people such as Yuri Kovalchuk and those people who are around uh, Yuri Kovalchuk. And of course, the military can tell Putin, and they are indeed telling him now, that we, in current conditions, cannot do the task that we've been assigned. And Putin has to take that into account. But the decision is made by him, of course. So what is the way to pressure Russia to get serious at the negotiating table? Unfortunately, no other advice can be given here other than the courage of the Ukrainians and the sanctions that undercut the opportunities for Putin to buy new weapons and to hire mercenaries. So only force. Putin will only understand if there is pressure, if there is resistance from Ukraine, if there are sanctions from the West. Unfortunately, he's that kind of a person. All his life, he's always dealt with uh, the criminal elements and was indeed himself part of that criminal world. Doesn't treat the loss seriously. Welcome to the journalist. He, in the uh, late 20th century, institutions for that matter. conflicts in increased world. air threats the on a global scale. Force. With the development of technology, both air defense systems and air threat elements have evolved. Air defense weak, contributes to deterrence as and he peace does, and for crisis, example, about and to Mr. limit Macron. enemy air and.
he simply takes advantage of you. When he feels force, when he's afraid of force, he's ready to talk. A lot of people have criticized Joe Biden for saying that he wished uh, uh, Vladimir Putin were no longer in power. Um, the argument is you have to negotiate with him. Uh, you're going to have to sign a deal with him. Uh, and so this would complicate things. How do you see it? I have also done a lot of criticizing of Mr. Biden, but from a different perspective. I think that his words are absolutely correct and very important. First of all, they're important because people in the world, all over the world, are waiting, are expecting an ethical assessment from the leader of the free world. And when this leader gives this ethical assessment, that is important. His assessment that such people should not be in power. It's understandable that only the Kremlin and maybe the White House interpreted these words as Mr. Biden being ready to personally remove the Russian president. Everybody else understood it correctly. It was an ethical assessment. Russians are going to remove Russia's president. Another second important thing is that Mr. Putin perceives and, uh, uh, this approach uh, w without the show of force as weakness. And so when Mr. Biden said that uh, using weapons, that there's going to be an appropriate response to the use of weapons of mass response, mass destruction. That's not a provocation for Putin. That that's something that, that that puts brakes on his on his desires. And on the other hand, when Mr. Schultz or Mr. Macron says that there's no way uh, that we should uh, take part in uh, a clash with uh, with Putin's uh, forces, that actually encourages Putin to use weapons of mass destruction. This is a, a fundamental lack of understanding of the uh, mentality of a person who ha has, has been among criminals all his life. So Putin is now facing obstacles in Ukraine. Um, what, given what you know of his mentality, what is he going to do? Is he going to, is he going to turn Ukraine into Chechnya, destroy it? Is he going to back, back away? What do you think his options are? For him, the situation today is very complicated. At first, what he wanted was to uh, change the power in Kyiv, put in his puppet, and was expecting that, that this would be met with flowers thrown in the streets by Ukrainian people. When this did not happen, he went crazy. The fact that the people in Kharkov did not meet him with flowers, it not only just angered him, I really think it, it drove him literally insane. That's when he started bombing Kharkiv and Kiev. Right now he has three options that face him, uh, three ways out. First way out is to continue pressuring Ukraine um, and probably losing troops in, in, in this process because the Ukrainians are fighting back ever more strongly with every day. Secondly, he could use weapons of mass destruction in the hope that this would force the Ukrainians to retreat. And the third option 
is to start actual negotiations. When Mr. Biden, when NATO officials say that in one voice that if Mr. Putin, use, if you use WMDs, you will get an appropriate response from NATO, that actually gives Putin only one choice, to sit down for real at the negotiating table. Let me ask you, um, we're not thinking a lot about this, but if Putin somehow comes out of this stronger... Is Ukraine expanding its Dnipro bridgehead even uh, as Russia... Do you think he has greater ambitions that he could at some point um, attack the Baltic states or Poland? We must understand that in his head, Putin is at war not with Ukraine. He's at war with, with the United States and NATO. He said this more than once. His propagandists have already been started to prepare Russian society for an attack on NATO countries. They're constantly talking about this, and this is the preparation of Russian public opinion for this. I'm absolutely convinced that if Putin decides that he has won in Ukraine, this is not going to be the last step, the last war. The next steps will be the Baltic countries. I've always wanted to ask you this question because I figure you probably can answer it better than almost anybody. Um, what do you think Vladimir Putin is worth in terms of the, all the money he has been able to take out of Russia personally? For a long time, Putin was a person that was money-oriented. But as with many elderly criminals, he now has a mission in his head. And that is actually way more scary. His mission, under which he has to show the whole world that he is great, that he is leaving the world a legacy. That's a lot scarier than when he was just uh, gathering money. Right now, I think money is not going to stop him. Yeah, well, I know what's going to stop him, his ego. It's going to get too big. He's going to, these guys, you give them enough rope and they hang themselves. It happens every time. Did not Adolf Hitler do that? He wanted more and more and more. That title of that James Bond movie is perfect. The world is not enough. The world is not enough. I love that title. And it's not going to be enough for Putin. And he's going to run into someone, somebody, just like Caesar did, just like Napoleon did. We'll be right back. Home of the ultimate knowledge of body, soul, and spirit. And unlimited music 24-7. visit our website at enlightenment-radio.com. There you can journey through the mystical voyage and also view our schedule of programming. Thank you for listening.
So we're getting ready to do another news report, and uh, we're getting ready to do another news report. I don't have anything to share with you that shows any advantage that Russia is having in any of these battles. Um, so I'm going to play this news report, and I wanted to play Take the Money and Run after that report, but I couldn't find it. I'll find it in a minute. Let's go. Welcome to The Journalist. In the late 20th century, conflicts increased air threats on a global scale. With the development of technology, both air defense systems and air threat elements have evolved. Air defense contributes to deterrence in peace and crisis and to limit enemy air and missile attacks in war. In these days of the most violent conflicts of the 21st century, air defense systems are once again underlining their importance. In the relentless war between Russia and Ukraine, Many air defense systems, especially the S-400 and S-300 batteries, are on the agenda. Russia relied a lot on the S-300 air defense systems. It was not thought that the Ukrainian armed forces could destroy the S-300S and even the S-400S until the war started. However, Ukrainian forces managed to destroy Russian S-300 and S-400 air defense systems with MiG-29 and Su-24 fighter jets. Bayraktar TB2, and even HIMARS artillery. So far, the destruction of about two dozen Russian S-300 air defense systems and at least seven S-400S has been published by the Ukrainian general staff. According to open sources and the data of the Ukrainian general staff, by June the Russians had confirmed the loss of two S-400S and 13 S-300 air defense systems. These losses seem to have increased as a result of Ukraine's recent operations in conjunction with the fall offensive. The war in Ukraine was taken to a new level with the arrival of HIMARS. Likewise, the arrival of Stormy Shadow in May and then Scalp and ATACMS in the fall took it to a whole new level. The initial offensive of the Ukrainian forces started with HIMARS and Stormy Shadow. This week, the Ukrainian Air Force, using Su-24 fighter jets and HIMARS, Stormy Shadow and Attackums missiles destroyed Vladimir Putin's favorite S-400S and S-300S, taking the war to a whole new level. As you know, the Ukrainian armed forces have launched a major offensive operation centered on Bakhmut, and fierce fighting is currently taking place in the Avdivka area. The second wing of the Ukrainian offensive plan includes the southern front lines. In fact, the second wing of the plan has much more strategic objectives. Using the dominance in Kherson and liberating Crimea is the second tier of the Ukrainian Armed Forces' major offensive plans. For these reasons, Russia is very worried and does not want to withdraw from these areas and lose Crimea. Therefore, Russia has deployed its most robust air defense systems and reinforcements on Ukraine's southern front lines. In particular, Russia's S-400 air defense systems protect the strategic front line from Kherson to Crimea. The Russians are very confident in the S-400 defense systems. The Ukrainian Air Force has previously suggested that Russia is making greater use of the S-300 and S-400 missile systems to compensate for the lack of ballistic missiles. Russia has developed the S-400 system to replace the older S-300, although both are still in service. The S-400 system has a very high value, often located well behind the front lines where other artillery cannot reach. For the Russians, 
The S-400 defense systems are insurance for the front lines around Kherson and Crimea. But the Ukrainians have destroyed the Russian insurance. American-made HIMARS and ATACMS and the British Storm Shadow were largely responsible for this success. In recent weeks, Russian troops have lost at least four long-range surface-to-air missile launchers as a result of attacks by the Ukrainian defense forces. As you may recall, last week Ukrainian forces successfully hit a strategic target of the Russian occupier's air defense system in the temporarily occupied Crimea on the west coast. Then Ukrainian forces destroyed the S-400 strategic air defense system near temporarily occupied Luhansk. Finally, with this loss suffered by Russia, these weapons, which are limited in the arsenal of the Russian army, have been recorded as a painful blow to the air defense system of the occupiers. Natalia Humanyuk, the head of the Joint Press Center of the Southern Forces of Ukraine, said that the army destroyed the enemy's potential, not only in terms of attack but also in terms of defense, and that a heavy blow was dealt to the invaders and gave the message that it will continue. UK Defense Intelligence reported on intelligence data. British Defense Intelligence reported on the destruction of three SA-21 launchers placed by the interventionists in the occupied Luhansk region of Ukraine. The British Ministry of Defense, Ukrainian sources reported additional losses of Russian air defense in Crimea. The publication also notes that the Russian Federation has long prioritized a sufficient number of high-tech long-range air defense systems as an important component of its military strategy. Recent losses show that Russia's integrated air defense system continues the fight against modern precision strike weapons and will likely increase the already significant pressure on the remaining systems and operators, the report says. The ministry also noted that there is a realistic possibility that Russia will replace systems destroyed in Ukraine while weakening air defenses in other operational areas. Also last week, one more Russian S-400 air defense system defending Crimea was destroyed by ATACMS in Kherson. Earlier, it was confirmed by both the Ukrainian and Russian defense ministries that two Russian S-400 air defense systems in Crimea were loaded by storm shadow missiles. Looking at the state of the war, it is clear that Russia has really overestimated its military in every respect. Russian air defense systems are weak. The system may be good in a strategic sense, but their famous long-range systems, such as the S-300, S-350, and especially the S-400 Triumph, show that they cannot counter such missiles. On the other hand, Ukrainian defenders continue to eliminate more and more Russian invaders. An attack was launched on the positions of the invaders near the temporarily occupied city of Mariupol. Ukrainian fighters regularly target enemy fortified positions with infantry, heavy equipment, ammunition depots and trucks used by Russians to transport ammunition, food and troops to the front line. Ukrainian armed forces soldiers hit enemy headquarters. So why has Russia relied so heavily on the S-400 air defense system for so long? And what makes these systems special? The S-400 Triumph, also known by its NATO report name SA-21 Growler, is a mobile platform that the Center for Strategic and International Studies a U.S. think tank, describes as roughly comparable to the U.S. Patriot system. The S-400 is a mobile surface-to-air missile system developed in the late 1990s by Russia's Almaz Naval Engineering Center Design Bureau as an upgrade of the S-300. Russian state military exporter Rosoboronexport 
said the S-400 is capable of destroying all types of air targets and ballistic missiles. According to Russian state media, its estimated range is about 400 kilometers or about 250 miles, and it entered service in 2007. The 55K6E is a truck-mounted command post container designed to integrate with certain interfaces and software of the S-400 Triumph radar systems. The design shares the Ural truck's wheeled chassis with other battery elements and uses a telescopic mast to maximize RF data link coverage. The mobile command post is designed to provide automated control of the separate air defense missile systems and combinations that make up the air defense grouping. The system's command post cannot save the shorter-range air defense system that is supposed to cover the S-400 as part of its echelon air defense. These include the Pansier S-1 air defense system, which is used in the ranks of the Russian Air Force precisely for such tasks. In other words, by destroying the Russian S-400 air defense system, the characteristics of which we have already mentioned, Ukraine has proved that there is no need to make such a big deal about the state-of-the-art weapons and missile systems in the Russian army, which Vladimir Putin boasts about. In conclusion, there is no end in sight for the Ukrainian war for the time being. Both countries are gathering their forces for counterattacks. According to Russian media reports, the Russian Defense Ministry is likely preparing for a massive recruitment campaign. The aim will be to recruit 400,000 professional soldiers, which is different from the mobilization of reserves that the Kremlin has ordered in the past. But rebuilding Russia's fighting force in Ukraine will require more than just personnel. Russia needs more ammunition and military equipment than is currently available. However, there is currently a significant shortage of modern weapon systems and ammunition in Russia, and any new contingent will have to make do with obsolete systems like the World War II designs the Kremlin is currently sending to the front lines. Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine is about to turn into a historical disaster. Both the loss of the S-300 air system and a series of failures on the front lines are destroying the Russian leader's war strategies. We will see in the coming days what will be the next move of Putin, who does not give up despite the failures and casualties. Thank you for watching us. These reports are coming in from experts when he says we are about to witness the worst disaster and defeat by Vladimir Putin in his history. Now that man knows what he's talking about. He's not making this up. He's analyzed it. He went through the whole map. I know you couldn't see it. Go see it on YouTube. It's uh, let me give you the name of that YouTube, and it'll be uh, it'll be on our uh, Spotify podcast. Just go there in a couple of days. It'll be in the Ukrainian language. These guys, I haven't found one that's outside of a ABC talking head news and analysis that doesn't know jack squat about war. Only all they know about is cocktail parties in in Washington D.C. with politicians rubbing urban elbows. That's all they know about. So, in lieu of that last uh, interview with the richest man in Russia was taken in prison, here's what I say he should have done. Take the money and run. <laughs> What happened when they decided to cut loose? They headed 
Is Ukraine expanding its Dnipro bridgehead even as Russia throws more troops into the useless offensive? Just how deep can the Ukrainians get? I'm Paul, U.S. Army combat veteran. It's November 15th, 2023. This is your daily Ukraine update. Let's get into it. Okay, first, on the control map, there's been only minor frontline updates, which itself I thought was really telling uh, for a couple of reasons. Most notably, the only real change has been out here in Bakhmut with a small revision uh, of Russian forces, right, not occupying this no man's land, but occupying the two salients around it. I think this is sort of semantics, right? As we've seen, the fighting is really with troops concentrated in these forested areas, strong points. So calling this no man's land or calling it Russian controlled is sort of semantics. But the real takeaway here is what isn't happening, which is anything, right? We've seen Russian forces make in the last couple of days these considerable pushes in and around Yadhine to the north of Bakhmut. We've also seen Russian forces continue to make sort of um, piecemeal hodgepodge advances around Avdivka without actually putting pressure on the town itself. And so the fact that Russia seems to be losing steam and needs to to refit, re-equip, and replan its attacks uh, and have longer intervals between their assaults where they make more and more minor gains is itself actually good news for Ukraine. It says that they've absorbed probably the worst of the Russian offensive actions and aren't haven't really lost much territory as a result. I think you'll still see some incremental gains by Russian forces. They're not going to stop this easily, and Russia seems to have a deep well of troops, but I think the risk of a major breakthrough is, is pretty low um can't really say the same about the russian forces though uh there are a lot of rumors first off that uh you can see russian forces launching 57 combat engagements spread out across the entirety of the eastern front line heavily concentrated around avdivka i mean this is this is a lot of offensive work around avdivka uh, a lot of offensive work around bakhmut um and of course a smattering around the northern Kharkiv area but i think the takeaway here again is that russia really trying to continue its offensive push but it's every one of these offensive actions, while they are 
a lot, they're also pretty anemic at the same time. You can see Ukrainian forces taking down a Russian Su-25 in and around Avdivka. Um, but here's what I thought was most interesting. Again, you can see that there are what it says guided bombs, so likely aircraft uh, strikes against Ukrainian positions in Burslav, which is noteworthy because it is very, very near, again, probably a staging area for Ukrainian actions in and around Kherson. And this is sort of the thing I, I wanted to make note of, is that you can see Russian air assets are few and far between. And so when you do see them, again, you see them in places like Avdivka, Bachman. And so something is happening here that warrants Russia deploying its limited air assets, like we talked about yesterday. Uh, well, when we look at, according to Euromaiden Press, which bear in mind, this is a, an explicitly pro-Ukraine uh, channel, but the, reportedly Ukrainian troops have widened their bridgehead in the Dnipro east of the Kherson Oblast. Um, and that this bridgehead has been steadily expanding. There's been a lot of footage online um, of these operations, and it appears that uh, Ukrainian forces are able to cross the bridge relatively unopposed. Now, is this? Are, have they solved the question of how to get thousands of troops and tons of material across the bridge? Not yet, but they're starting to. They're using armored amphibious vehicles to move light infantry troops and can move some tanks and armored vehicles with these um, ferry that this ferry system but the further they expand that bridgehead and the longer out it goes the more Russia the more Ukraine is going to be able to systematize and increase the scale of these ferry operations taking place and that might be their strategy they might just say hey listen we're going to deploy more and more of these ferries and pontoon systems until we are confident we can establish like a pontoon bridge or something of that like to really move these troops material across now um you can see there's, okay, there's a lot of footage. I'm going to try not to get demonetized by showing too much of it, but I want you to take, uh, take the takeaway I want you guys to have is of this photo right here. So this says, well, this is saying possible ways to ex expand the bridgehead. I'm less interested in that and more uh, interested in the fact that it seems like this bridgehead is a, a in and around this town of Krinki. Uh, let's see if we can take a look at it here when we zoom in. Uh, so here's Krinki here. Um, and you can see that according to this, uh, this long sort of uh, riverside town is probably now in Ukrainian hands from this from this account. And this, again, is going to be a real challenge because you can see here there's this marshland they have to cross at the Dnipro, but they've got to pour resources into Krinki and begin to expand their bridgehead in different directions. Now, the territory has some advantages and some disadvantages. Big advantage all this wood line, right? It's going to be hard to see uh, overhead when Ukrainian forces move through. The catch is that it's also easy to defend. It's fairly easy to dig into this extensive wooded area, and Ukraine itself is going to have a tough time using its artillery to to grind out Russian forces. You can also see that when we zoom in, Krinky, the town itself, doesn't actually lead into this wood line here. So they're going to have to get access to some of these roadways. Now, another option is, of course, to jump over to Kozachi Lahari, and then from here, try to use these two towns as a bridgehead around the Dnipro. Um, 
when we zoom out, you can see, right, the deepest part of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, right, the most penetration we've seen from Ukrainian forces has stretched, oh, it looks like about 10 kilometers into Russian territory, about eight and a half. So for perspective, uh, eight and a half is going to look like, uh, let's close this out here, uh, you know, to, to, to match that effort, right, which was taken at, to be clear, pretty tremendous cost uh to get eight kilometers in to Krinki is going to take oh let's see just about right here so this is a very very deep deep uh forested region um which again could be to ukraine's advantage or to their disadvantage um if you wanted to punch that deep in from kozachi lahari you see here it's going to take uh yeah not n honestly not the sort of tremendous effort um, that you might expect, um, especially given the fact that you that Russia has put very little effort into mining a lot of these areas, a lot of these regions. So I actually am th fairly optimistic. You may see a substantial breakthrough um, in and around this region, given that Russia just doesn't seem that prepared for it. Again, the biggest question is, you can see, this is hilly terrain, this is forested terrain, and in some ways, it's very advantageous for an attacker um, to have this overhead cover, but in some ways, it's very, very advantageous to a defender. So I think you're going to see Ukraine try to rope in a lot of these villages here um, before trying to really make a, a larger push, uh, and probably not into these forested regions. I suspect they might go towards Pidstapine, um, Pristianivka, and, and Poima, and try to really surge right down here you can see if they can do so getting into these roadways clearing them is going to really potentially produce a lot of desirable effects and then you know the thing to talk about is that a lot of these elements guarding here this is very thinly defended you can see an intelligence brigade which doesn't isn't really going to have infantry but you can see a, a regiment a battalion a regiment 70th and show egoists. So this is not the elite VDV who've been deployed and are trying to contain Ukrainian forces here in the Robtine Verbova region. So, it, you know, if Ukraine can get this at scale, I don't think this is going to have the, the tremendous Russian resistance that we've seen in uh, from other uh, other fronts, right? Particularly Zaporizhia, right? A frontal assault into the region that Russia has maximally prepared for defense. Um, very, very curious to see what the next week or so will bring. Um, now, if you guys want to support uh, a company, a veteran-owned company, uh, owned by, well, me, um, uh, you want to check out Strike Gum. This is a uh, caffeine gum, an energy gum, zero sugar, 90 milligrams of caffeine in every piece. If you're checking it out, at the store, you might notice that that's more caffeine than a Red Bull, and that's in each one of these individual pieces. It's manufactured here in the USA. Uh, we have veterans and military discounts. Um, you can check us out at strikegum.com, and best of all, 50% of the profits from this first production run, I'm going to donate to Ukraine charities that benefit Ukrainian civilians who've been injured or displaced in the conflict. So check us out, strikegum.com. It's a great product. We've had dozens and dozens of five-star reviews, and and tons and tons of reorders, uh, which it tells me everything I need to know. Uh, so again, check us out. Okay. Other than that, guys, I, I really think that's probably the biggest story here. Um, 
there is confirmation, right? Ukrainian's president's office, the head of the office of the president, confirmed yesterday that Ukrainian forces have this foothold in eastern Kherson Oblast, which says that probably the secret is out. Um, and they, they, while he's not specific about counteroffensive operations from that, generally we, the Ukrainians won't say they've, they've taken territory unless they're confident they're not going to get pushed out of it. And the fact that this is across a major river uh, itself tells me that they're confident that the Russians won't be able to muster the manpower to push them back. So, we'll, again, I'm it's more optimistic than many that this is going to lead to something bigger and better. Anyway, guys, that's all I had. Thank you so much. Thanks to our Colonel tier members at combatvetnews.com. Thanks to our Lieutenant tier members. I couldn't do this without all you guys. Um, be sure to hit like and subscribe. Thank you so much. See you in the next
Yeah.